from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Uh, before we read uh, the t next text in our series, uh, Second Wind, Second Light, I, I want to say something about one of the characters we will meet in this narrative from Acts chapter 8. His name is Philip, and there's a strong probability that Philip was converted to the Jesus movement, that he was uh, converted to the way of Christ at Pentecost. Uh, Philip was not part of the original 12 apostles, and it's safe to assume that he was not part of the crowds uh, that followed Jesus in the Galilee during his earthly ministry. Uh, there's also a strong probability that Philip, who was Jewish, uh, was a Hellenist. Uh, and to understand the meaning of this uh, particular identity marker, it's helpful to note that there were two cohorts of Jews uh, in the very early days of the Jerusalem church. Uh, you had the Hebraic Jews who spoke Aramaic, read some Hebrew if they read at all, uh, and were from the immediate region of Roman-occupied Palestine. And they were attuned not just to the religious identity of Judaism, but also to the cultural and political identity of Judaism as well. So you had the Hebraic Jews, but you also had uh, the Hellenist Jews. And Hellenist Jews, their mother tongue was Greek. Hellenist Jews did not necessarily reside or come from the immediate region surrounding Jerusalem. And they were much more culturally assimilated into the Greco-Roman world. Uh, we don't know this for, cer for certain, but Philip might have been making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem at Pentecost. Coming from wherever he was from, outside of the region, he might have been there the day that Peter preached that Pentecost sermon. We read that story from Acts chapter 2, the last day in May, which was Pentecost Sunday. And so Philip joined the Jerusalem church. He joined this Jesus movement, and eventually he was selected as one of its leaders. He was part of the first class of deacons that the Jerusalem church ordained. And those deacons, they, they were in charge of taking care of the needs of widows and anyone else on the margins of their community. Philip's leadership role also would expand uh, to include the work of an evangelist as one who was charged to preach and to proclaim the gospel uh, throughout the land. So as we enter into this story, I wanted to give you a little bit of background about Philip, and I, I'd invite you to remember uh, who this Philip is as we meet him in this narrative, that he's part of the Jesus movement, that he's part of the Jesus way. He's a leader in that movement as a deacon and as an evangelist, and he is also a Hellenist Jew. So listen now to God's word to you and to me. Then an angel of the Lord said to Philip, get up and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. 
This is a wilderness road. So he got up and went. Now there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of the Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home. Seated in his chariot, he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, go over to this chariot and join it. So Philip ran to it and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. Philip asked, do you understand what you're reading? The Ethiopian replied, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to get into his chariot and sit beside him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, about whom, may I ask you, does this prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip began to speak, and starting with this scripture, he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. As they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? He commanded the chariot to stop, and both of them, Philip and the eunuch, went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. The eunuch saw him no more and went on his way home rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he was passing through the region, he proclaimed the good news to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, break open your word afresh to us this day so that we would be changed, so that we would be different people than those who came to be a part of worship this day, even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. 21st century Ethiopia is a nation in East Africa. It's landlocked by the borders of Kenya, Somalia, Djibouti, Eritrea, Sudan, and South Sudan. But in the first century, to to talk about Ethiopia, to talk or to speak about this land was not necessarily to, to speak of a defined nation state, but rather to reference a region that extended beyond what was considered to be the inhabited world. In the first century, Ethiopia was the region below Egypt, below the Sahara Desert. It literally represented, for a first century person, it literally represented the ends of the earth. And this is important for Luke, the the author of the book of Acts, Because in Acts chapter 1, we hear Jesus prior to his ascension into heaven, 
We hear Jesus tell his followers that they would receive the Holy Spirit, that they would receive power from the Spirit to become his witnesses, not just in Jerusalem, but in all of Judea and all of Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. Seven chapters in, a Jesus follower, a Hellenist Jew named Philip, is called to fulfill that command. He's called to a journey on a wilderness road between Jerusalem and Gaza, where he will be led by the Spirit to attend to the curiosity and devotion of an Ethiopian traveling back home after making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, something that most likely Philip was familiar with, making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. An Ethiopian is reading out loud a portion of the Isaiah scroll. We don't know how he has come to possess this scroll, but he is reading a portion of the scroll out loud, and he's most likely reading it in Greek, and he's trying to discern what it means. Philip, who speaks Greek, recognizes his own language spoken by this Ethiopian. He recognizes the text as being from the Isaiah scroll, the one that the Ethiopian is reading aloud. And then prompted by the Holy Spirit, Luke says, he runs up alongside the Ethiopian's chariot and asks him if he understands what he's reading. In a moment of inquiry and and in a moment of wonder, the Ethiopian says, how can I understand if no one guides me? And Philip, upon invitation, jumps into the chariot and together they read the scripture. And Philip tells the Ethiopian about the good news of the gospel of Jesus of Nazareth. We don't know all the details that Philip shares, but it's safe to assume that Philip at least told him about baptism told him about the sign and seal that marked who belonged to the Jesus movement and to his way, who were the ones who were incorporated into his life, death, and his resurrection. As they journey on the wilderness road, miraculously they come upon some form of water and the Ethiopian asks, is there anything that prevents me from being baptized? Is there anything that prevents me from being baptized? Now I know you know what happens next. We all know how the story ends. I just read it for us. But I want you to pause for a second. I want to invite you to, to not rush to the end of the story. I'd invite you to sit in the question that comes from the lips of the Ethiopian. Is there anything that prevents me from being baptized? I want to invite us to sit in that question. And as we do, let us keep in front of us, let us remember that baptism is the preeminent sign, the preeminent symbol of our inclusion in the life of God and our inclusion in the family of God. It is the preeminent sign and symbol that we belong to Jesus Christ in this age 
and in the age to come. It is the preeminent sign and symbol that we belong to one another as part of the body of Christ, what is known as the church. In the words of the Apostle Paul from Romans chapter 5, verse 12, we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually we are members one of another. That's what baptism means for our faith and our life together. And the Ethiopian asks, is there anything that prevents me from being baptized? In other words, is there anything that prevents me from inclusion and embrace? Is there anything that prevents me from belonging to Jesus Christ and to belonging to his family? I want us to sit with this question for a few moments. Is there anything that prevents me? As we continue to sit with it, let us note in the first place that this question can be asked in terms of the identity markers that give meaning and shape to the Ethiopian's experience, what it means to uniquely be him. He could be asking, is there anything in me Philip, is there anything about me, Philip, that would prohibit God's welcome and embrace of me? Is there anything in me or about me that would forbid and exclude me from being baptized? Does the color of my skin disqualify me? Does the fact that I have a a high political status disqualify me? Does my ethnicity disqualify me? Does the fact that I'm not Jewish disqualify me? Does the fact that I have access to power and wealth and I drive around in a fancy chariot, does that disqualify me? Does the fact that I am a eunuch, a sexual other, does that disqualify me? Is there anything in me, Philip? Is there anything about me, Philip, that will keep me from God's welcome and God's embrace? There are some of us who routinely ask this question or a form of this question. Sometimes we frame it in subtle ways, sometimes in more obvious ways. There are some of us who ask this question out of self-loathing and out of self-rejection. How can God embrace someone like me? Some of you ask this question because the church has rejected you. The church has excluded you. The church has marginalized you. And that has produced so much pain and so much heartache. And you naturally see your experience with God through the lens of your experience with the church. Some of you ask this question because society has rejected you. They have declared that you are less than Some of you ask this question because you're skeptical and uncertain that such a force of love and welcome would pay any mind to you and pay attention to the brokenness of the world in which you live. Some of you ask this question believing that you have to be so good and so perfect in order to receive this welcome from God and wonder if you will ever be good enough, wonder if you will ever live up to the standards that you've put on yourself 
to the perfection that you live by? Is there something in me? Is there something about me, Philip, that will prevent me from God's welcome and God's embrace? On this Father's Day, I, of course, think of my own father. And relevant to this theme, I know that he struggled with questions like these in his own life. The fourth of 10 children, first generation American on his mother's side. He was, he was born into poverty. He was subjected to physical and verbal abuse from his own father. And when it came to his faith, when it came to his Christian life, I, I know my dad wondered, was there something about him or something in him that would rebuff the welcome and embrace of God? I know he asked those questions. It wasn't until he was 45 years old, my exact age, and when he was diagnosed with, with terminal cancer, that I believe that he fully gave himself over to the truth that nothing prevented him from the welcome and embrace of his creator. And I watched him live and trust in that truth. And I watched him die and trust in that truth. And I was convinced that, that this truth was a truth that I could embrace as well in my own life. In so many ways, he was my Philip. In so many ways, he was the evangelist that I needed to hear. My hope and prayer is that for every person participating in worship today, every person who's watching this worship service, every person that's hearing these words, that you and I would be able to trust that there is nothing in you, that there is nothing about you that will prevent the welcome and embrace of God in your life. The question the, the Ethiopian eunuch asks actually cuts another way. He was not just asking, Philip, is there anything in me or about me that prevents me from being baptized? He was also asking Philip. I believe this. I think he was also asking Philip to consider the question himself. Apply it to himself. Philip, is there anything in you Philip, is there anything about you that would cause you not to embrace me? Is there anything in you or about you that would not welcome me, that would prohibit you from receiving me as a sibling in the family of faith? Is, is there a story that you constantly tell about me? Is there a bias or prejudice you possess? Is, is, is there a hardness in your heart toward me that prohibits you from welcoming me and embracing me the way God has? Is there anything in you, Philip, that prevents us from being family? Is there anything in you that prevents you from baptizing me? Questions like these can stir a, a, a sort of reckoning in us. 
They cause us to evaluate the convictions we hold about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if the gospel we profess really is good news for everybody, good news for all people. One of my college mentors, uh, Tony Campolo, told a story from many years ago about a young Christian woman who attended the evangelical university I attended for undergraduate, and the one that that Tony spent most of his academic uh, career teaching at. This young Christian woman, by all accounts, was a superstar, a leader on and off campus. She was a a tender-hearted evangelist who showed up in the world with compassion and with empathy. She was a worship leader at the weekly chapel services, and she was a straight-A student. She truly had a heart for God, and she had a heart for other people. One day, she showed up in Tony's office, and she was completely and totally undone, completely and totally distraught. He could tell that she had been crying. And Tony asked her what was, what was wrong. And she, she said through her tears, my friends just outed me. They all know I'm gay. At that time and at that school, I'm not proud to say that the prevailing theology of the day was to love the sinner and hate the sin, which never felt like love in any form or fashion. Most of the time, that saying produced forms of exclusion, not embrace. To top it off, her father was a very well-known and well-regarded pastor from a church within that particular area. And his views on homosexuality were were no secret at all. Tony knew it, and the pastor's daughter knew it as well. How in the world am I going to tell him? I know I have to tell him, but will he accept me? Will he love me? Will we still be family? After coming up with a plan... Tony called the father. He called this pastor. And they exchanged their hellos. And Tony said, you know, Reverend Smith, your daughter is a woman of deep Christian faith. And the father said, oh, yes, Dr. Campolo, I, I know that to be true. And he said, Reverend Smith, your, your daughter is a leader on campus and, and off campus. She shines the love and grace of God to everyone who she meets. Reverend Smith said, oh yes, Dr. Campolo, I know that to be true. Tony continued, he said, there is no one more dedicated to following Jesus at our school than your daughter. And in the next 30 seconds, we are going to learn if you have the same love and same embrace that Jesus has for her. In the next 30 seconds, we are going to discover if you're still worthy to be called her father. He handed her the phone and she bravely and courageously said, Dad, I love you. I'm gay. The father started to cry and he said to his daughter, I love you too. And nothing will ever 
change that? Is there something in me? Is there something about me that prevents me from embracing those whom God has already embraced? Is there something in me that needs to be untied, that needs to be let loose, that needs to be undone, something to be forgiven, something that needs to be purged, something that needs to be removed, something that needs to be redeemed so that I may be bound to the one whom God has already embraced in and through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Is there something in me that prevents me from being somebody's sibling in the family of faith. May we, like Philip, be able to answer that question with a resounding no in every aspect of our life. And may we move toward the other with the welcome and the embrace that God has for all of us. Amen. We affirm our faith using words from the Confession of 1967. They can be found in your digital copy of the Order for Worship, or you can simply listen to this affirmation as I read it aloud. To be reconciled to God is to be sent into the world as God's reconciling community. This community, the church universal, is entrusted with God's message of reconciliation and share God's labor of healing the enmities which separate people from God and from each other. Christ has called the church to this mission and given it the gift of the Holy Spirit. The church maintains continuity with the apostles and with Israel by faithful obedience to God's call. Amen.